Hey guys, Mike here for Hokey Hangover on behalf of the good folks over at Main Street Pharmacy. Former Downtown Blacksburg Business of the Year in 2019, Jeremy Counts and his staff at Main Street Pharmacy have you covered for all of your pharmaceutical needs. Medication, school supplies, you name it. Jeremy and his staff, family-owned business, they got you covered over at Main Street Pharmacy in Downtown Blacksburg. They've been a sponsor of our podcast since the beginning, going on five years now, and there's a reason why. They're extremely extremely reliable. They're good people. They're friends of ours, friends of the podcast. Head on over to Main Street Pharmacy, 301 South Main Street, downtown Blacksburg. Open Monday to Friday, 9 to 6, Saturday from 9 to noon. They're closed on Sundays. You can be reached at 540-605-7721. That's Main Street Pharmacy, 301 South Main Street in downtown Blacksburg. Hokie Hangover is proud to be sponsored by Homefield, the premium collegiate apparel brand in the United States. Based in Indianapolis, Homefield is committed to creating comfortable and officially licensed apparel featuring vintage college designs. Homefield puts in extra reps for each of the more than 150 colleges they highlight, discovering unique logos, mascots, and iconic moments to create the best look at your tailgate. Go to homefieldapparel.com and use the promo code BEAMERBALL to get 15% off your first order. Homefield makes online shopping so easy, even I can't screw it up. Again, use the promo code BEAMERBALL to get 15% off your first order and acquire blue chip apparel from Homefield, an official sponsor of Hokie Hangover. Hokey Hangover. It is Thursday night, December 21st. We're four days from Christmas. We haven't recorded a podcast in two and a half weeks. And since then, a decent amount has happened, Ricky LeBlue. Yeah. Talk about uh, a busy time of the year. Uh, it, it, it makes you wonder if the coaches and the NCAA need to revisit the timeline for January in terms of signing day. The transfer portal, recruiting, it seems like it's all its all a bit of a mess. Uh, but yeah, there has been a lot that's happened. Um, a lot of people are traveling, including myself. I'm in Tennessee at the moment, uh, recording from my phone. So hopefully the audio quality is up to our listener standards. But yeah, we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, and what we actually won't really talk about tonight, which is the fact that Virginia Tech plays an actual football game here in a few days. Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that. So you and I are recording tonight talking about National Signing Day, which just happened yesterday, the early signing day. We're going to be talking about the transfers uh, that are coming in that Virginia Tech has landed since our last recording. We're going to be talking about the guys who are coming back into the fold from this past year's team um, that will be returning next year. A lot of big news there. So it's going to be a lot of roster stuff on this podcast tonight with you and I. Andrew was not with us, but Andrew is going to be recording with me tomorrow a two-lane bowl preview he and i are going to record that you are not going to be on that podcast so we're just kind of piecing things together before we conclude the march to annapolis uh in about a week uh you myself and andrew 
are all going to be in Annapolis at the bowl game. Uh, we're going to be tailgating together. We're going to be sitting together. It's going to be a fantastic time. Uh, a bunch of people I know are, are coming with us. We, we got a giant group ticket order. It's going to be great. We're going to give you as much information as we can. It's general admission parking. So we'll be tweeting out where we're at. Come by, say hello. Make sure to come meet us. That would be very cool. Just want to get yeah. that out there. If you're planning to be in Annapolis, we will be there. We're looking forward to meeting you. Yeah, we all we all have parking for uh, the, I guess, whatever the general lot is. Um, and like you said, we'll be putting specifics out there. But lots of uh, famous Hokie folks going to be in that group, most notably probably as Clark Ruland, who is Mr. Hokie, essentially, the unofficial mayor of Blacksburg himself. Uh, will be in attendance um, along with Izzy, his fiance, uh, who many Hokies know as well, uh, and then some some uh, friends of mine, Dave Scarangella, who's a, a longtime Hokie, uh, someone who I've grown really close with and has been on the pod before. Uh, producer Scott from Basketball Conference will be there. Uh, if you are able to determine Scott's relation to Mike McDaniel at the tailgate, you may or may not win some bourbon. Which, That's right. Which is an encouraging uh, an encouraging prize. Uh, Andrew and I are banned from this contest, which is disappointing, uh, but I look forward to seeing the winner. Since you all are familiar with Scott's relation to me, <laughs> as I'm sure most people on this podcast are. So really, it's just an invitation for all of you to come drink with us, which is kind yeah, of the point we're trying to make here. If you've been listening to the podcast at all this year, uh, you've, you've heard references to Scott multiple times. So. Yes. It's almost like a reward for the loyal listener, right? Yeah, you should yeah. stop by the tailgate before Virginia Tech beats Tulane. Uh, spoiler alert. And uh, get <laughs> yeah. yourself a I was going to say, um, uh, yeah, Andrew and I, I guess I should have addressed this part of it. Not only will Andrew and I be previewing the military bowl, we'll be previewing the game between Virginia Tech and what is essentially the corpse of Tulane. <laughs> because yeah. they really Not don't. the same team. They are not the same team that's taken the field for the majority of the season, either on the field with their actual players or with their coaching staff. So we'll get into all that on the preview. Yeah. Uh, but first, Virginia Tech, Ricky, yesterday, uh, because early signing day now in December is essentially the key national signing day. It's when the majority of the prospects are signed, aside from a handful <laughs> of really like the top prospects in the country. Um, those are really the only ones that that matter uh, in February. And to be quite honest with you, a lot of them now commit in December so that they can be on campus um, for, for spring ball. Well, that, like and that the only reason they wouldn't sign in December now anyways is because the um, NIL check bounced or didn't come through. So. Right. Shout out Deion <laughs> Sanders. Um, yeah, a, a lot of them. A lot of them like to get on campus early, uh, winter workouts into spring practice. Is what I meant to say a minute ago. Um, obviously, the guys who sign in February can also uh, hold know, out, maybe get a bigger bag. Yeah, get get a little bit bigger bag. NIL has changed everything, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but let's start with this: Virginia Tech landed three transfers uh, from the transfer portal, and I think all of them carry their own significance let's start with sam brumfield i want to start with him because i i the the, the headliner is peoples right and he is peoples 
Sam Brumfield, though, is a Mike linebacker that was an all-conference player at Middle Tennessee State. Shout out Rick Stockstill. <laughs> uh, all-conference player. He is the second Middle Tennessee State transfer that Brent Pry has gotten out of the portal. Obviously, Jalen Lane being the other. We'll talk about him in a bit. Um, but Sam Brumfield into the fold. Really, really productive player uh, for the Blue Raiders. A true Mike linebacker which Virginia Tech just simply did not have on the roster this year, Ricky. Brumfield feels like a plug-and-play guy, you know? Uh, coming in, obviously been productive at the G5 level, but a true middle linebacker for a defense that needs it so desperately. Yeah, and just one quick point of order. They got three FBS transfers. Mari Copeland coming through JUCO is is big, and we're certainly going to highlight him, but... Yep. I think Brumfield is really, really important in the sense that Mike Linebacker has been a bit of a revolving door for the last several years. Virginia Tech has struggled to find consistent play in the middle of their defense for quite some time. And we kind of thought that maybe Tisdale or Jaden Keller would be able to develop into that role under Brent Pry and Chris Marv. And they just haven't. Right. And there's not a lot of <clears throat> encouraging depth, I think, behind either of those guys to the point where Brent Pry felt comp confident that either of them would be able to start next year. So getting Brumfield gives you someone who is much more of a known quantity. I I'm not sure he's going to be an elite player. He may not even be a good player, but I'm fairly confident that he will be an average player at worst. And Quite honestly, that would be a huge improvement considering yeah. what we saw this year at, at the Mike position. So there's a bit of range for Brumfield. I, I don't think his ceiling is all that high, but I think his floor is pretty high. And you're you're going to get someone that's got enough experience and wisdom to play that position. And I, I, I agree with your assessment in the sense that it is a bit of a plug-and-play type guy. I would be shocked if Brumfield is not the starting Mike linebacker next year. And it, it's certainly a, a win for Brent Pry to address what was the worst position on his defense this year. Yeah, I mean, how many games did we talk about, especially losses, right, where Virginia Tech struggled really right up the middle of their defense? Um, yeah, absolutely. Where, you know, running backs got to a second level, and it just felt like the Hokies never really had a shot defensively because they were so weak. In, in the middle of the defense. And I think Brumfield obviously is, is an upgrade in whatever shape or form uh, he kind of brings to the table. Like you mentioned, I think he certainly raises the floor at the position and you know what his ceiling is kind of remains to be seen, right? We've seen group of five players um, take the jump to a power five conference program. And we've seen them struggle a bit with the, uh, you know, better level of competition, right? The higher level of competition. We've seen that. Yeah. We've also seen guys step in and be really, really good, right? Coming from the G5 or even the FCS and, and be really good. And that's not, not just at Virginia Tech. That's elsewhere too. So it really remains to be seen. But I think your assessment's correct where the floor has certainly been raised at the Mike linebacker position and even average play out of, you know, the one of the most important positions, if not the most important position on the defense is, is sorely needed for the Hokies. I think Brumfield provides you that. And yeah, he is, and hopefully, oh, and hopefully he'll be able to shore up some of the guys around him. I mean, I, I think we felt yeah. like 
the run fits were bad really at every level of the defense this year, except for maybe a little bit on the defensive line. But uh, the Sam linebacker spot, the star position, uh, the the actual safeties themselves, almost all of them struggled this year in the run fits. And if you have someone that's going to be a bit more of a stalwart in the, on that defensive uh on that defensive unit, you hope that he can maybe elevate some of the play around him. And if he can, I think it makes a huge difference at safety. Um, And hopefully he'll be able to get some of those guys in front of him lined up as well, which uh, as we're about to discuss, the guys that are going to be in front of him are going to be brand new to this defense as well. Yeah. But I mean, let's start here. And he has people's coming in um, from Duke, a all conference player, this past year for the Blue Devils on a very good defense for Mike Elko. Uh, Good defensive tackle, really sorely needed, right? Virginia Tech is losing Kendricks. They're losing Pollard uh, up the middle of the defense. They're also losing Phil Darius Payne, who obviously came on strong the second half of the season. Josh Fuga is returning. Fuga is not enough. Like, they need more at the position. Peebles provides them that, right? Peebles, speaking of plug and play, (laughs) no doubt in my mind, he will be starting. Right. As long as he's healthy, he will be starting as next season begins. And I think he it's he seriously shores up the the Virginia Tech defensive line on the interior. Uh, this is a really, really big get for the Hokies just by ble- sheer level of play alone. Um, the fact that, you know, he's coming in off of his best season of his career at Duke and he's now entering the fold in a position of need. Talk about shoring up the middle of the defense between Brumfield and Peebles. And, you know, we'll talk about one other guy here in a moment. To me, Peebles is your Narell Pollard replacement. I, I think that they're very similar, uh, both a, a little undersized at the defensive tackle spot. Uh, but we saw the growth in Narell Pollard this year in what was easily his most productive season uh, in college uh, this past year. And you have to hope that, uh, Peebles will be able to replicate some of the success that he's had at Duke and build on that coming into this year. Um, Having APR on the edge, I think we'll be able to help a little bit. I'm not sure that Duke had a great pass rush at all this year. Um, Their their defense as a unit was pretty good, especially considering they got almost zero help from the offense throughout the entire season. Uh, But yeah, this is... uh, this was really probably the most important position for Virginia Tech to address. And that's just because of the fact that they were losing their top three defensive tackles from this past year, Pollard, Kendricks, and, and Payne. Uh, you mentioned that Fuga is, is back. And while that gives you some experience and some depth at that position, we've been pretty vocal on this podcast about Josh Fuga not really being a needle mover on this defense. And while, you know, you'll certainly take him as a rotational guy, he's not someone you want to really rely on. And neither is Wilfred Panay, for that matter. So getting Aeneas Peebles and also Kamari Copeland is a huge deal. Yeah, Kamari Copeland coming in from Iowa Western, uh, Juco transfer, multiple years of eligibility left, uh, a guy who is from the state of Virginia, wanted to play at Virginia Tech. He's kind of bounced all over the place. He now ends up with the Hokies with multiple years remaining. 6'2", 285. 
I am interested to see where they line him up because he has been a guy who has been on the edge at Iowa Western. He is a guy who is similar stature to Aeneas Peebles. Um, Peebles is 6'1", 285. Kamari Copeland, 6'2", 285, right? So I am interested to see where Copeland fits into the rotation, but I think he'll certainly be a guy who has a has a chance to play for sure. The way I see it, these are your two starting defensive tackles for 2024. Uh, they they have the the best track record of production out of anyone in the room. It's it's possible that they that Tech is able to bring someone in uh, in the spring. I guess that could maybe assist in this position. But given the the talent that's on the roster, uh, you bring these two guys in. These are you're bringing these guys in to start. So. I would imagine that Peebles and Copeland are DT1, DT2 next year. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, in Virginia Tech, I know they're they're talking to Calvin Gilliam, who you'll remember, Rick. I know you know this because you and I were writing for the um, the Virginia Tech site for Sports Illustrated during his entire recruitment. But Calvin Gilliam was a big-time prospect from the state of Virginia that the Hokies were pursuing during COVID. He ended up committing to Oklahoma, which was not a gigantic surprise. Um, he was one of the most sought after defensive linemen really in the mid Atlantic, like forget just Virginia, uh, the mid Atlantic. He was a top one hundred and fifty prospect on two, four, seven sports, big time prospect, uh, played a bit at Oklahoma. He's transferring with two years remaining. And he is not yet committed to Virginia Tech, um, but he took an official visit over the weekend. He is not signed. I think he's taking some other visits. Usually in the transfer portal, you know, uh, if you're taking an official visit, a school is real interested in having you. And the fact that you leave without, you know, really committing or in this case signing this past week probably means that Gilliam's got some opportunities elsewhere that he's looking into. Um, yeah. but I do think Virginia Tech is certainly in play for Gilliam. Um, to your point that you just made about maybe they bring somebody else in in the spring, I, I think Gilliam would be a guy who would kind of check that box. And look, Brent Pry said yesterday at the signing day press conference, once the class was signed, he said, you know, there are some other guys they're looking at in the portal, but it would have to make a whole hell of a lot of sense for Virginia Tech to bring somebody else in at this point out of the portal. I think Gilliam is one of those guys that Brent Pry would make room for considering the Hokies need in the middle of the defense. The fact that he's got multiple years remaining and considering the type of prospect he is, he's from Virginia. He's from the footprint. Uh, I, th I think it was Stonebridge high school. Um, Highland, I know Springs. Highland Springs. Okay. Highland Springs. So which has been a, uh, a good pipeline for Virginia Tech ever since they kind of repaired those relationships over the last couple of years. Yeah, for sure. Um, and Noah Jenkins uh, from this path from this recruiting class yesterday, uh, obviously signed with Virginia Tech out of Highland Springs. Hokies, you know, they snagged a couple prospects out of Highland Springs in Brent Price's first full recruiting class last year. I don't really count that transition class when he was on campus for like a week. Um, yeah. So uh, he's really done a good job repairing relationships. And I think that Gilliam is just a guy to keep an eye on uh, in the mold of, you know, middle of the defense, middle of the defensive line. That's that's a guy you make room for, I think. 
Yeah, and as much as we saw Tech rotate their defensive front this year, it would make sense that you would want to go in with the with at least four defensive tackles that you felt really comfortable with playing serious snaps. And I think they feel pretty good about the first two guys we just mentioned. Obviously, they feel good enough about Fuga to play in, in at least a rotational role. But I think the the Wilfred Panay part is uh, probably the biggest sticking point with this unit. Panay did play a lot this year at defensive tackle, uh, got less snaps as the year progressed, uh, as Feldarius Payne really started to come on. But you got to remember, Panay is a Fuente guy. He's not not from this regime. Uh, he's a guy that has kind of bounced around on the on the position group. Uh, I believe he came on as a tight end. I believe he was moved to defensive end and then defensive tackle as he's gotten bigger. It, it would not shock me if Brent Pry went into the spring or, or really just the later winter saying, hey, look, uh, if if we have the opportunity to bring on one more defensive tackle, we're going to find room for it. Yeah. I, I, there's there's certainly some snaps that are available at that position. Yeah, no doubt about it. And and let's be honest, Gilliam hasn't really earned a starting job with his track record yet. He hasn't played a ton at Oklahoma. Yep. Not really much production. You're kind of bringing him on as a bit of a flyer, a bit of a depth piece at this point. Uh, it's not like you're bringing on someone who has an entrenched record as a as a productive starter somewhere, like an Aeneas Peoples or even a Kamari Copeland at the JUCO level. So, um bringing on Gilliam isn't isn't the kind of move that I think breaks the bank in terms of uh, kind of elevating this unit to like an elite tier, but it gives you that needed playable depth at the, at this position. And let's, let's call it what it was. Regina tech was pretty lucky this year with the injuries on the defensive front. I don't believe they had any uh, serious long-term injuries on the defensive front this year. Uh, that's not going to be the case <laughs> on a year-to-year basis. So the the more of those big guys up front that you can bring in that you feel comfortable playing, the better you're going to be. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, you know, in Gilliam's case, being a former top prospect that hasn't played a ton with multiple years of eligibility, that's the kind of guy you bring in as a rotational piece and hope that you can kind of untap that potential, right, and bring him along and actually develop him in a way that he wasn't developed at Oklahoma. Offensive lineman Montavious Cunningham is the final transfer, right? He's the third FBS transfer. Offensive tackle from Georgia State. But Brent Pry mentioned at 6'3", 305, that Brent Pry and the staff view Cunningham as a swing guy where he could potentially play guard. Uh, Look, I'm of the opinion where you bring in as many offensive linemen as you need to and you figure it out later. This is the only one Virginia Tech's brought in out of the transfer portal. And Ricky, to be quite honest with you, I, I was I, I tweeted this and I and I didn't really have this take a couple weeks ago when I saw like all of the offensive linemen that Virginia Tech were offering. I saw Colby Crawford for uh VT Scoops done a really good job of kind of compiling that list of all the offers that Virginia Tech's had out there for all these transfer linemen. The thought I had is that Virginia Tech put together, ended up putting together a pretty good offense, right, for three quarters of the season with Kyron Drones and Bashel Tootin and a good wide receiving core. They put together this pretty good offense with an offensive line that, quite honestly, was not very good, right? They were able to piece it together and score a ton of points in the second half of the year. 
Now, while I think offensive line is an obvious position in need, and like I mentioned, bring in as many guys as you can and see who fits where and figure it out later. I think out of the positions that needed to be addressed, if there was one area where Virginia Tech could afford to miss, right? Because it seems like Cunningham is at least at this point going to be the only transfer offensive lineman. If there was one position of need they could afford to miss, I would prefer it to be on the offensive line rather than a defensive tackle and at linebacker, where I think Virginia Tech had the more glaring weaknesses from start to finish this year. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Virginia Tech's offensive line play was very up and down throughout the season. The one thing that you, I guess, hang your hat on at this at this group is, you know, these guys are coming back. Uh, except for I think I don't think Bob Schick is back. I'm not sure uh, if he has another year or not. Um, you're kind of in a position <clears throat> where you have to hope that you see some some development out of these yeah. guys. And we know that Caden Moore was kind of hit or miss at center. He's probably playing out of position. He probably needs to slide back into a guard spot, but if you're bringing in Cunningham as a swing player, chances are that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Cunningham did start at right tackle last year for Georgia, uh, for Georgia state. Um, He's probably going to play a lot of both would be my guess. Uh, There is a possibility that maybe some of the guys that are below them could, could find their way into a spot. I would doubt it. I think you're, Offensive line is going to be mostly unchanged from this past year. But I guess considering the the level of play at linebacker, which was pretty poor, yeah. considering the the exodus of defensive tackles, yeah. uh, out of those three groups, which I do think were the three most important groups that Virginia mm-hmm. Tech needed to address this year, this is probably the one that was the least uh, – was the smallest priority. So yeah. Virginia Tech does get does get a guy to help come in. Uh I think I would have definitely preferred at least one more mm-hmm. for this group up. But it, it, as long as this group can stay healthy, I mean they'll have some depth, but that kind of goes back to the conversation we just had. Virginia Tech was pretty lucky on the offensive line this year in terms of injuries and uh, you just cannot bank on that year in and year out. So Cunningham, I would assume, is going to play a lot of snaps. You're probably going to see him at both guard and tackle on the right side. Yeah, I mean, the right side of the offensive line, while really the offensive line in totality was, I think, by the end of the year, average. By the end of the year, they were at least a competent unit. Right. I mean, they... They struggled against teams that had better athletes up front and kind of like the the rest of the team, you know, if they were facing a group that was relatively similar in terms of athleticism and talent, they were able to hold their own. Right. Um, but, you know, if, if you're going to try and get into that seven, eight win mark, which I think we're going to be talking a lot about this off season and yeah. going into next year, if that's going to be your target, you're going to have to play a little bit better against some better units. And we're going to need to see better play from the interior of the line for sure. And I think right tackle, especially Parker Clements is going to have to shore up himself as a pass blocker uh, and as a run blocker, really for that matter. 
and give Virginia Tech a bit more to work with. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, a revolving door on the right side of the offensive line all year, both at guard and tackle. Um, well, I mean, Clements played most of the snaps at right tackle, but it just wasn't the the play was not there, right? Did not did not play well. Okay, so those are the transfers coming in, right? Yeah, pretty significant, I would say. Uh, we spent a good amount of time on that for obvious reason. Virginia Tech brought in a signing class on Wednesday um, of 15 guys. The 16th was Kamari Copeland, right? So Kamari Copeland signed on National Signing Day yesterday. Um, but it's a class of 15 high school prospects that Virginia Tech brought in. The reason why I bring that up is because if you look at like Virginia Tech's ranking in terms of, you know, overall recruiting class, it gets skewed on 247 sports based on how many recruits you bring in, right? The more recruits you bring in, the higher your score. Um, I note that because if you go by the composite alone, Virginia Tech signed the number nine recruiting class in the ACC. If you do what I like to do, which is the average recruiting ranking, Virginia Tech signed the fourth best class in the ACC in terms of, uh, you know, how the recruits were rated. So it's a small class for Tech that worked against them in terms of the composite ranking nationally. But if you look at the average <clears throat> recruit, about an 88 overall on 247 sports, Virginia Tech signed four four stars, 12 three stars, that, that, that that's 16. The one three star was Copeland, right? That came in as a as a JUCO transfer. So really, eleven three star prospects at the high school level, four four star prospects. I mean, a pretty a pretty good class for Brent Pry. Heavy on the state of Virginia, like he promised. Um, he mentioned when he came to Blacksburg, he was going to try to flip the state of Virginia. And Ricky, I don't know if you have the tweet in front of you, but I know you saw it from Pete B. Our guy Pete B had the breakdown of Virginia Tech prospects uh, from the state of Virginia, the four-star or better prospects that Virginia Tech signed this year in the state of Virginia, I think it was, or top 10 prospects in the state of Virginia that the Hokies yeah. signed versus Penn State and kind of how so, this is flips since probably got here. So last year, the top 15 in the state, six of them committed to Penn State and signed. Zero of the top 15 committed to Virginia Tech. Uh, this past year, in this most recent cycle, zero of the top 15 went to Penn State and four of them went to Virginia Tech. So certainly Virginia Tech is doing better with some of the higher level prospects within the state. And that's a testament to the staff and their ability to repair some of those relationships that were clearly broken uh, under Justin Fuente and his and his staff. Mike, you know me. I'm not. Uh, I'm not one to get super excited about high school recruiting. Uh, I, I've I've been bit by that bullet before. Uh, these these classes are extremely hard to evaluate. Um, I mean, y you yourself mentioned that there were what three four star prospects in this class. Well, that depends on where you look, right? Because if you go by the two four seven composite, which is kind of the <clears throat> somewhat accepted standard uh, and we can argue about how good it is because I think it's certainly a flawed number there's only one four star in this class um, I think what you saw though this year was that some of the three star prospects that sit on the higher end of the scale 
we're committing in this class and they make up a fair portion of it. Um, there are certainly some intriguing prospects in this class as there are every year. A lot of this though, <clears throat> all comes down to development. Like it, it's one thing to bring these guys in and that's extremely important, right? But as the transfer portal eats up more and more of your roster on a yearly basis, you have to find a way to develop these guys quickly and you have to find a way to orchestrate a plan for them so that they feel like staying is the best option. And that's extremely difficult. And it's especially difficult at the quarterback position. Uh, well, I think the transfer rate for quarterbacks is somewhat, something like 50%, which is just absurd. But um, if you go by the numbers, this is certainly a better class than one of the better classes we've seen Virginia Tech signed in the last five years. I think that's a fair a fair range. Fuente certainly trailed off in his recruiting classes with signing some really low-level guys, and it certainly showed up on the roster as Virginia Tech's depth started to dwindle. Uh, you just have to hope that Brent Pry and these guys can develop some of these players. Um, I think there's a chance that you know a couple of these guys may be able to play early on um, I'm not sure that someone like Gabe Williams, who's the the headliner of this class, the the one two four seven composite four star, a top two hundred player per two four seven. I'm not sure he's a guy that's going to be able to play early, given that Virginia Tech has gone pretty heavy at the linebacker position in the last couple of years, so they have a lot of young guys of that group already. But I see someone like Keelan Adams at receiver, probably not going to play early, right? Virginia Tech's going to have all four of their starting receivers back, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, but a name that I've seen floated a little bit, and this is, could be a name to watch for uh, as we go into the spring, would be Joshua Clark from Flint Hill School in Oakton. Um He's got some versatility between corner and safety. Safety is going to be a position that is going to be wide open, I think, this year. Yeah. Spring. And there's certainly a possibility that a freshman like him or even a Noah Jenkins could find them find themselves in, in a rotation at that spot. Um, there's a few guys in, in this group that could maybe go into there. So it's a it, by all metrics, it, it's a better class than Virginia Tech is used to over the last few years. And uh, Brent Pry and his staff deserve credit for that. Uh, but we all have to remember that while recruiting is important, the development of these guys is equally as important. And especially so at a, a school like Virginia Tech, where you're never going to, to go for broke on the recruiting trail and you're going to have to um, develop some of these guys and do a little bit with less. That's just kind of the nature of this business right now. It's never going to be in Ohio State, <laughs> Georgia, yeah type for texas florida state miami but never but, going to recruit like that but mike let me let me tell you what was and, and we can kind of transition this now as we talk to some of the returning guys yeah what's important to me is when we finished the off season tech had a net increase in talent yep and that that means your recruiting class, right? Has, your recruiting class needs to be consistently good. You're going to have to have a year or two thrown in there where you're really good, but consistently you need to have a, a pretty competent class, but you need to win the portal. You need to retain your starters. 
right? You, you, you don't want to have um, someone like Jameer Gibbs, right, who was a star at Georgia Tech, an absolute star, goes to Alabama, right? Like you, you don't want to see those kinds of losses. You don't want to see a Tavion Robinson or a Caleb Smith. You want to see those guys stay, and you want to be able to have that net increase in talent from the portal. And given all of the returners that have already committed for next year, given the transfers, given the class, it seems like Brent Pry has won on all three of those. Yeah, I mean, his his best offseason yet, right? It's early, but... Yeah, I, <laughs> I, mean, I don't think there's any... I don't think there's any arguing it. Yeah, and... um. You know, I think a big reason for that, Ricky, is because it's one thing to sell hope, right? We were talking coming out of September. It's like <laughs> Virginia Tech's got to start winning games because if not, you know, selling hope only means so much for so long. Virginia Tech's able to sell a little bit of success, right? They were able to turn around their season. They're able to get to a bowl game. Um, they're in a position where they can certainly win this bowl game against an outgunned Tulane team, get to seven wins on the year. That's a big yeah. deal. Going from three wins to seven wins is a gigantic deal. Um, yeah, he, it, it, it it's even more so when you can when you can point to next year and say every almost every single starter on the offense is back. Your quarterback's coming back. Your running back is coming back. Your top four receivers are coming back. Um, four of your starting offensive linemen are back. That is. Those are the kinds of things that lead people to maybe get a bit too excited about next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure we're going to have to address at some point, but those are the kinds of off seasons you need to have when you when you find guys <clears throat> that are that are playing at a good level. You've got to retain them. Recruiting your own roster is is become almost as important as recruiting guys that aren't on your roster. And Brent Pry, to this point, has done that in spades. And it's going to show big benefits next year. He's bringing back his best pass rusher from last year. Um, Monsor Delane is coming back. So Dorian Strong is coming back. Yeah, like you're keeping those guys in the fold means so, so much. And um, coming off of what was a, a successful season, and retaining your good starting players and, and filling a couple gaps with what seemed like some really competent guys out of the portal. Uh, this has been a really good month or so for Brent Pry in terms of uh, retaining big, key, important parts of his lineup, but also finding guys in the portal that can really fill some of those gaps. Yeah, because as you mentioned with, you know, high school prospects, you got to develop them quickly or else the portal is just right there for the taking, right? It's kind of a double-edged sword, though, because as soon as you develop them, other schools are looking to poach them. Yeah. And Virginia Tech, under Brent Pry, this offseason so far has proven that not only are they recruiting at the high school level, they're bringing in guys who can certainly be impact transfers to you know, fill gaps on this on the existing roster. And then on top of that, you're retaining the guys in the fold who had successful years this year. Obviously, Kyron Drones is coming back. Running back Bayshall Tootin is coming back. 
Stephen Gosnell, Jalen Lane, Daquan Felton, and Allie Jennings, who got hurt, and we were really wondering if Jennings was going to think about making a return for another year of college eligibility after hurting his ankle, uh, basically two snaps into the Purdue game. Uh, we were wondering if he was going to come back. He's coming back too. And he was the guy who came into the into the year with the highest ceiling, we thought, out of all the guys. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he is back, and he basically didn't even play a ton for Virginia Tech this year. He played for one full game, and he was really good against Old Dominion, his his former his former program. And then he he hurt himself on basically like the first or second drive of the game against Purdue, and he missed the rest of the year. He's coming back. Four wide rec- your four starting wide receivers are all back. Aiden Green played significant snaps this year as a freshman. He's obviously going to be back as kind of like your fifth receiver. You're starting running back, starting quarterback. You got continuity on the offensive line, and you're filling in the gaps on the defense. Ricky, a lot of it does come down to depth, and I think depth for Virginia Tech's roster right now is something that Brent Pry is obviously still building. So it's going to take some time for Virginia Tech to reach what a ceiling could be, I think, under Pry and the staff. But I think next year, the Hokies have put themselves in position to take another really, really good step forward. Because I think on paper, at least the starters look really good. Like the offense looks good. The defense outside of safety looks pretty solid. You return your top two corners, like you mentioned. You, The defensive line on paper looks better. You're you know, filling in a gap in the middle of your defense at linebacker that I think is really important. And I think if you're a Virginia Tech fan and you know that Brent Pry is a defensive-minded head coach, I think if you want to have two units go into the year with more question marks, I think you'd rather it be the defense. I think you'd rather a guy who's always had good defenses kind of try to figure it out with his up-and-coming defensive coordinator and Chris Marv. So I think it sets up well for Virginia Tech to take another step forward next year and maybe try to find a way to win seven or eight games in the regular season. I think that's a realistic expectation given the roster that's coming back and the schedule that the Hobies have in front of them next year. Mike, you said the word expectation. Brent Pry is, is reaching the point in his tenure where ex- he's going to have to start dealing with expectations. Yep. He does that a little bit this year in terms of you know folks like myself and 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 you and Andrew as well kind of saying hey getting to a bowl game is kind of important right like you know you have to do these things next year it's going to be that and and much more um you're going to have folks looking at the ACC all of the transfers that have happened uh not really sure what Florida State's going to look like next year considering they're losing some of their really key players. Uh, Clemson is kind of a big question mark, right? UNC is going to have to replace Drake May. Uh, The entire ACC is in flux, uh, both long-term and short-term. You're going to have some folks look at this Virginia Tech roster and say, okay, look, the offense made a huge stride last year. It's mostly intact. The defense returns some key starters. They had some key transfer additions. It's the third year. Folks are going to look at this roster and say, tell me how that's not an eight-win team. These are the kinds of expectations that we're going to start discussing as we go through the offseason and as we get through spring ball going into to summer camp. <clears throat> um, and it, it the... 
the paradigm of the Brent Pry era is is in transition. We, you know, he is he is still in you know in the process of his rebuild, but we are reaching the point in the rebuild where um, your your reliance on moral victories is less and less, and you've really got to start putting up those results and. Getting to six wins was such a huge milestone, in my opinion, for this team this year. And next year, it's going to be, can you get to seven? Can you find a way to get to eight? So um, it's a really exciting time, honestly. I mean, I haven't been been this optimistic about this program really since 2017. I was going to make a joke and say since the start of last season. (laughs) <laughs> when you predicted nine wins yeah well, that was uh that was a failure in judgment uh but no i mean i i really haven't been this optimistic about the long-term future of the program since 2017 when when justin fuente was coming off 19 wins in two years so uh brent fry deserves a lot of credit for what he's done in the last two three weeks between recruiting transfers retaining guys on the roster. Um, I thought they did a tremendous job with their national signing day uh, presentation. Once again, very similar to last year. It's been very well received. It's interesting. A lot of it's uh, pomp and circumstance and flash, but some of that is, you know, a huge part of recruiting. And while I may kind of scoff at some of that stuff personally and think it's a bit, uh, a, a bit overdone, um, that stuff's not aimed at me, right? Like that stuff is aimed at high school coaches and, and high school athletic directors and high school recruits. So kudos to, to Pry and the staff. I think they're doing a really good job so far this off season. And after we get through the bowl, the, the bowl period and the dead period, and we start to get into the winter workouts, I, I think we're going to really start to take an optimistic look at next year. Yeah, and I think if you ask Brent Pry, he would sign up for expectations like that every day of the week. It means he's doing the right stuff, right? He's, year, he's doing the right stuff in the rebuild. I feel like year three, you're allowed to start to raise the level of expectations a little yeah. bit. Um, six wins is is not the standard, right? Like six wins was a temporary threshold for Brent Pry to get to. Um. This has always been a program where six wins is like the basement, right? Like it's the it's the well. Um, but we have to understand that this is a process, and um, this process, you know, it really should be a, a linear process. I, I don't think that there's any reason for Brent Pry to take a step back next year. I, I think very much so that this is a team that needs to take a couple steps forward and. Uh, given how this offseason has gone so far and given what we've seen through the transfer portal, through the, the guys staying and, and through the recruiting um, and, and how it's improved, I think we're headed in that direction. And one thing I, I want to uh, I want to get out ahead of this, Ricky, it's December of 2023, right before year three. I want to get out ahead of this a little bit, maybe like a year, year and a half in advance. If Virginia Tech exceeds expectations next year and has a really good year, but then loses their entire receiving core, their starting quarterback, and their starting running back after the year because they had a really good year, and maybe they lose their two starting corners and they all go to the draft, 
I don't want the fan base to then be up in arms if Virginia Tech takes a slight step back two seasons from now and think that Brett Pry is not the guy. Just want to get out ahead of that and and just let everybody know now where I stand on that because I've yeah. seen I've seen fan bases where you know a team exceeds expectations and is more successful at the outset than maybe they should be and then it takes a minimal the program takes a minimal step back and all of a sudden everybody's in a panic and I, this is what I thought was happening under Fuente after the 2017 season when Virginia Tech went to the Camping World Bowl and lost to a really good Oklahoma State team. But then the following year, kind of all hell broke loose, and that was what ultimately was the beginning of the end, and then recruiting sucked. Like, those are obvious red flags. I'm talking, like, if he keeps recruiting well and Virginia Tech wins, like, 10 games next year, for example, and then everybody leaves, and then Virginia Tech wins, like, seven two years from now. Like, I want everybody to fucking panic, all right? That's all all I want to say. Don't panic. I, I think that is a a very uh, important point to make. The the one thing I will say is now more than ever, it is a lot easier to supplement your losses. Uh, in the past, right? Like it was, it was almost guaranteed that every program that wasn't, you know, the top five in the country, they were going to have cycles and they were going to go up and down because, you know, there are some times when your roster is really old and full of, of talented upperclassmen. And there are times when you're having to rely on a ton of sophomores to play and and maybe even some freshmen. And uh, now more than ever, no, you you can kind of get a kind of get around that through the portal, but yes, you're absolutely right. So we'll have to see how year three grows. I mean, year two did not go as expected. We, we got pretty much to the end goal, but the way we got there was very odd. Uh, so, you know, who knows how year three is going to work out? We don't know. I mean, we know what teams are going to play, but we don't know the schedule. So we don't know that, you know, how that's all going to pan out. Um, but there, there is reason for tech fans to be excited. You know, I, I'm, I'm usually the the gloomy bastard on this podcast and I'm, I wear that sometimes with a badge of honor, but folks should be excited about what they're seeing right now. They should be happy. And Brent pride deserves credit. Yeah, I mean, how, how could you not be? And and in regard to the schedule this year, real quick before we wrap up, just and I've talked to a couple of people about this. My my very good friend Johnny, I was up at his house last weekend in New Jersey. I talked to Scott about this too. I'm not going to re- reveal how Scott and I are, uh, what what our relationship is because that would give away the uh, the bourbon <laughs> giveaway at the tailgate. But I've I've talked to them both about this. In regard to how the schedule is laid out, please, for the love of God, like. Don't have us play Clemson in a in a body blow game and then have to fly across the country to Palo Alto and play Stanford. Don't make us go to Miami. This was Scott's point. Don't make us go on the road to Miami and then fly across the country afterwards and go play on the road the next week at Stanford. Can we get Stanford like after a bye week or or something? Or maybe yeah. maybe get them after like a a a throwaway game, like a game where we're favored by a couple okay. touchdowns. Yeah, or after yeah, exactly. Just yeah. not don't don't screw us on the on the scheduling with Stanford the first time we have to go out there and play okay well, well we have already blown by what we thought this how long this podcast would go but Double that kind of that yeah that kind of leads into the last point that I wanted to make was uh, Florida State's <clears throat> board of visitors having a meeting tomorrow which will actually be today by the time folks are listening to this uh, this is supposedly Florida State uh, 
Florida State's board deciding if they're going to pursue terminating the grant of rights. Um, Mike, we we said this was going to happen last year when all the realignment stuff was going on the first time. Florida State's been very loud about not being happy with the ACC, them getting left out of the college football playoff. Now they have a reason. Uh, so, uh, and we jokingly said before we started recording that USF was auditioning tonight for the ACC in their in their absolute destruction of of Syracuse. Um, things could be a lot different by the time we get to spring and how the ACC could look in 2025. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Florida state now has a reason, like a real reason to want to get out of the ACC outside of screaming about the revenue gap, which look point taken. I understand. I get it. I think it's valid. Trust me. Tech fans understand. Uh, I totally understand. Right. I think it's valid, but uh, now they have a reason being a 13 and 0 ACC champion being out left out of the 14 playoff. They probably think now they're going to get screwed on seating in, when the playoff expands next year, and they're 100% right. They are going to get screwed on seating moving forward. There's already precedent now where they're not seen as a great team because of the conference they came from this year. Not only that, because Jordan Travis was hurt, obviously. All that to say that Florida State is going to try to open some sort of litigation against the ACC. They're going to try to sue them uh, to try to get this grant of rights the buyout for the grant of rights, so to speak, to get that number down. I, I think it would be the end goal, try to find a way to terminate that contract. The only way that happens is if they sue the conference. So I expect that to be what ends up happening tomorrow when the, when the, uh, when the board meets and we'll see if, you know, what's to make of that. But the ACC, I think, you know, next year, two years from now, five years from now is going to look a lot differently than even it looks right now with, Stanford, Cal, and SMU in the fold. Yeah, I think the best case scenario is the ACC ends up like the Big 12. Uh, worst case scenario is the ACC ends up like Conference USA. So we'll, we'll have to see how it goes. Um, folks, thanks for listening. If you got to this point, we really do appreciate it. Um, the preview pod for the Military Bowl, the March to Annapolis, will be coming out soon. Mike and Andrew are going to be recording that tomorrow, which is Friday. Um, and we'll be sharing details about the tailgate stuff as we get closer to the game itself. Uh, everyone's invited. We're going to have plenty of refreshments. We'll leave it at that. Uh, and folks will be able to enjoy themselves and uh, just kind of a, a way for us to, to say thanks to folks. So we're certainly excited to, to get to that point, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Um, subscribing is really, really important, so you never miss an episode. Uh, that's all I got, Mike. Anything else? That's good. Uh, we will talk on the uh, – you and I won't, but Andrew and I will be talking on the preview, and then, Ricky, I will see you next week in Annapolis. Yeah, I, I guess I should put this in there real quick before we leave. I think Virginia Tech's winning this game. Yeah. So, um, did not think that early on when the bowl stuff got – assigned but given all that's happened mike and andrew are going to talk about it in detail i think virginia tech's going to pull this one out i'm feeling pretty good yeah feeling pretty good about it too almost to the point where like if virginia tech lost this game i'd be very disappointed which i yeah. promised i would not be with a bowl game but you I mean did. we're there hey we're... look if they don't win in annapolis the season is a total failure brent <laughs> pry 
Brent Pry and his staff ought to be uh, marched down Main Street and 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 yelled at by fans. Uh, pitchfork mob organizing on Beamer Way, just absolute shambles. And as Andrew would say, going into 2024, if Virginia Tech loses the bowl game against Tulane, do you feel better or worse? You have to feel worse. You have to feel worse. We'll see you on the preview. Go Hokies. <laughs>